This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro. Before we get started, just wanted to remind you that we are available on all of the major podcast streaming platforms. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and of course, Apple Podcasts. As our audience grows, so does our reach. If you know someone that should have health gig in their lives, next time you see them, invite them to subscribe to the show. Namaste. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Trisha and I are delighted that Dr. Jim Allison and Dr. Pam Sharma are with us today on HealthGig. Both are pioneers in the cancer world. One of them is a Nobel laureate, and they're married. Their lives are so fascinating that we think there should be a movie about them. But wait a minute, there is. So we have so much to talk to them about today, and we wanted to start at the very beginning. You both have very different upbringings. Can you share with us who you are and where you came from? Dr. Sharma, let's begin with you. I am a Guyanese American. I'm an immigrant. I came from Guyana, which is in South America. I came here when I was 10 years old. So I've uh, been through all of my educational training in the U.S. I have always been interested in science, and so my passion for science is what drove me over all the different years, and I pursued my MD and my PhD in immunology to do oncology research and try to have the immune system be used as a therapeutic modality in the treatment of cancer. I've just been passionate about science my entire life, and I think that the opportunity provided in the United States has really been an amazing adventure for me, and I hope to give back to other people, and especially other people in Guyana, and especially other women of color, such as myself. I've had a wonderful experience, but that's who I am in a nutshell. So, Dr. Allison, can you share with us who you are and where you came from? Where I came from, it's a little easier. I was born in Alice, Texas. Uh, most people have never heard of it. It's a little place 40 miles inland from Corpus Christi. And my father was a physician that was just a you know, sort of country doctor, made a lot of house calls, got paid in tamales a lot of times. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he, um, I got interested in biology and science when I was very young, and he helped you know, support that idea. He always wanted me to go to medical school. Didn't, it didn't work out. I, I couldn't have it. But anyway, he was the first immunologist I met, I suppose, because he would take me if, if there was a kid in the neighborhood. You know, it's before vaccines. So if there was a kid in the neighborhood that had measles or mumps or chickenpox or something, he'd make sure I'd go over with him, you know, and he'd make me sit up in the bed with the other kid for a while, make sure I got it. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, he was aware of it. Much better you know, when you're young than when you're older. Anyway, so I did all my education in Texas. Uh, went to Alice High School and then UT Austin. My work after that took me to Berkeley, California, University of California, for about 20 years, and then to New York City to Memorial Sloan Kettering for about 10 years. I've been back here about eight now, working with Pam. So you are an immunologist by trade? Yes. I didn't really train in it, but you know, that's, I've done that ever since I had my first faculty position. And Pam was lucky enough to train with some of the masters. My formal training was a PhD in immunology, and then my postdoctoral work was done with world-renowned immunologist, Dr. Lloyd Old, who had developed the field, really, for cancer immunotherapy in large part with vaccine clinical trials. And 
identification of T cells and CD8 T cells. So I really was with one of the masters as Jim pointed out for my yeah. training. Lloyd was a good friend and, and mentor of mine as well. I trained in biochemistry and just sort of got interested in immunology and T cells when I took an undergraduate course at UT Austin. And the professor said there are these new things just discovered called T cells. Nobody knows what they do except they go around the body and look for stuff you know that shouldn't be there and then deal with them. And you know, I asked him, well, how do they do that? And, how do they recognize that? Why don't they hurt normal cells? And he said, nobody knows. Nobody knows. I was so fascinated. I just decided I was going to study them. Still doing it 40 years later. Was there anyone in particular, any reason why you were inspired to study immunotherapy? Well, I think for me, it had to do with the idea that as an MD, because I did an MD-PhD program. So as an MD, I was treating patients in the hospital and the clinics and I was particularly moved by the children with leukemia when I was doing my work. You know, seeing these children dying was a difficult thing. I wanted to do more, and my PhD was in immunology, and I thought the immune system was this powerful thing that could get rid of viral infections or bacterial infections so well, but it wasn't doing a good job of treating cancer. And so I was moved to try and work on that and figure out how we can use the immune system to treat cancer, and it's one of the reasons that I joined Lloydell's lab. I'd started out just trying to understand T cells, how they worked. I always had in the back of my mind doing something in cancer because my mother and two of her brothers died of cancer when I was pretty young. And so they had seen that and seen the ravages of radiation and chemotherapy and just thought there could be something better. And, you know, there was a lot going on in immunotherapy at the time, but it took me a while to get there because I thought we had to first understand in some detail how the immune system actually worked. I think Jim's work clearly changed the field. I mean, for many of us in the field who were formally trained, just to point out, you know, we were formally trained in a way of thinking of how to turn the T cells on, how to get the T cells to go and attack cancer. And Jim's basic, you know, immunology studies really showed us that we were thinking about it all wrong. And all of the formal thoughts we had about it were not quite correct. And so he revolutionized the way we thought about T-cells because he showed that T-cells are not just about being turned on, that they have a pathway to turn them off. And that's the control, the tight regulation of the T-cells so that the T-cells don't attack normal cells. And he showed that in cancer patients, you have to actually block the off switches so that when you block those off switches, now the T-cells can go for longer periods of time to really attack the cancer and reject the tumors in patients. And so I think that was the fundamental piece of his work that brought the field really to the point where we are today to be able to cure some patients. Could you tell us exactly what is a T-cell? It's a white blood cell, a kind of a lymphocyte. They have a clonal receptor, meaning you've probably got about 100 million different ones with different receptors, and they all can recognize something different. And when they recognize something, at first they expand a lot. They start dividing and start building the army of soldiers to go out and attack whatever the problem it is and deal with it and then come to rest. And basically that's it. They come in several flavors. HIV AIDS, the lack of immune response there is because the AIDS virus kills T-cells. So everybody has T-cells, yeah. our army in there that makes up our immune system, our T-cells. There are specialized soldiers in your body. I think this is what you just explained, Dr. Sharma, is that Dr. Allison looked at them so differently than the way everybody was looking at them before. Yes. What he said to us was that we were thinking of T-cells. If you want to think of the T-cells as sort of a car and you have the ignition switch, Mm -hmm. which is how you turn the car on, but the car is not going to move if you just turn the ignition switch, right? So the T-cell receptor is the ignition switch. It's what's needed to recognize that there's something bad inside the body. But if that gets turned on, it's just one signal. It's not enough. 
And the second signal is the gas pedal of the car, right? You push on that and the car gets going. That's how the T-cells move. They need the second signal, which is the gas pedal or the CD28B7 stimulation. That's signal two. And then the T-cells can get going and do their job. But the problem is that it also has a brake pedal, like any good car. There's a brake pedal that engages, and so it stops the T-cell from doing its work. And Jim identified TKLA-4 as the brake pedal and showed that that brake pedal also gets engaged. And so the T-cell only has a short period of time to do its job. Cancer cells have been around for a long time, and the T-cell only has a short time. And eventually, the T-cells will stop before the cancers are completely eliminated in some patients. And so he said that if you took an antibody and you block the brakes, and now the brakes are no longer functioning, now the T-cell can keep going for long periods of time, and they can eliminate all of the cancer cells in some patients to lead to cure in some patients. And so I think that was a fundamental change in our thinking. We had always been focused on the ignition switch and the gas pedal. We did not even understand about the brakes. And Jim showed how important that was and for us to really think about that as a target for treating the T-cells, treating the immune system by targeting the brakes. And then when we do that, then the T-cells can treat the cancer. So the whole new evolution of cancer treatment about not targeting the cancer cells, but targeting the T-cells and targeting the T-cells in an appropriate manner to allow them to do their job. How did this come to you? Did you just suddenly get it? Uh, not quite. <laughs> in 1982, it goes back really to 82, when we worked out what the antigen receptor was, as Pam said, the ignition switch. At the time, everybody thought that was it. It was like a light switch. You know, you flip it and the lights come on. But quickly realized that wasn't the case, that there was another signal, and that's when CD28 came along, kind of a gas pedal. And so that starts a different program, additional program that tells the cells, you know, get going, start dividing, get ready to start doing what you're going to do. But then what we discovered in 1993, something like that, was this, as Pam said, this molecule c 4 You also turn that on when you give the ignition switch plus the gas pedal. You turn that program on, and it'll turn the T-cells off. By just concentrating on trying to turn T-cells on, you're probably just accelerating and getting turned off, you know, as a compensatory mechanism so your immune system wouldn't hurt you. And so I thought, well, let's just uh, take the brakes off and mm-hmm. we figured that we saw that. It took a couple of years, really, to convince ourselves that, you know, people in my lab that it really, CD4 really was a brake, you know, because there are a whole bunch of publications that said that it was a gas pedal. Mm-hmm. They said, no, it's not. It's a brake. At that point, pretty immediately, I said, I think we can take advantage of this to treat cancer. That was kind of the aha moment, but that was after. Right, 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 right. So did a whole bunch of experiments in mice and showed, sure enough, you could essentially just make tumors melt. Mm-hmm. It took a while to get in humans. I guess that's where our paths began to cross, although I didn't really know at the time because Pam was involved on the clinical side, designing some of the early trials with the drug company that we were working with to test and that's how you guys met? Well, we met well, a little, little later. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> that's an interesting story, right? I was in Lloyd Dahl's lab at the time at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and Metarex was the company that was interested in designing this phase one clinical trial with anti-CTLA-4. Jim was still at UC Berkeley at this time, and Metarex was speaking to different clinical investigators about how to design the phase one clinical trial with this new anti-CTLA-4 antibody. So I was one of the people involved in writing that and designing that with them. That was my initial introduction to the whole concept of this novel immunotherapy program where we were going to now block an inhibitory pathway on T-cells to try and treat patients. 
And then after I saw the preclinical data, which was all of the mouse data that Jim had been generating in the lab and had been involved in the phase one clinical trials where we started to see patients where in that phase one study really was a safety study to see if you can safely give the antibody in patients. But we were also seeing patients where the tumors were regressing and going away. I wanted to understand more about what was happening in a human immune response. And so at that point, I accepted my first faculty position. I was moving out of Lloyd's lab and becoming an independent investigator and moved to MD Anderson. And I wanted to set up experiments to understand the human immune response. And so I designed the first surgical clinical trial with anti-CTLA-4 antibody in patients with breast cancer. And I wanted Jim's approval to work with me and collaborate with me. And so I asked him to collaborate. But the story gets a little bit more interesting because... (laughs) At that point, I knew how busy he was, so I wrote the letter of collaboration for him (laughs) and basically asked him if he would just sign the letter to say he's going to work with me. And uh, this is all because Lloyd, who I worked with for so many years, Lloyd said, you should write the letter and coming to this meeting that you're going to be speaking at, so you guys will both see each other at the same meeting that Lloyd was organizing. So you could just ask him at that meeting, you know, would he be willing to collaborate with you and sign the letter? So I think Jim was a little bit taken by my uh, approach. (laughs) So maybe you could call that a love letter. (laughs) Yeah, like that's how the scientists work. Is that what you're suggesting? (laughs) Letter of collaboration in quotes, but it's really a love letter. Yes, I think he loves the scientific ideas. I I mean, he just tells you. Lloyd Old was kind of a common factor here because, you know, he was like the granddaddy of the whole field of immunotherapy. And, you know, he was in my department. Theoretically, I was kind of his boss. Anyway, it's complicated. But I got to know him pretty well and considered him a mentor and friend as well. And after this, after the love letter. (laughs) Pam went off to Houston, you know, and I was still in New York, but we communicated and she started showing me some of the data that she was generating and I was just really taken with it. Blown away. Yeah, without going into details, it was difficult at the time to get specimens from patients to really analyze so you'd know what was going on, you know, what are the molecular details, which is what I wanted to know. So getting we just couldn't get a start uh, for a lot of reasons. But Pam figured out a way to do that by treating patients before they go to surgery. And there was just a gold mine of information that came out of those trials and so we started collaborating at that point. And the rest still, is history. Still doing it. Yeah. That's incredible. That's not exactly how I fell in love with my husband, but okay. I have a question. I have to say, there's really a point in your life where you think nobody's going to be as excited about the things I'm excited about. Yeah. They're not going to see my passion for the things I love. But then when you meet the person who's just as excited about T-cells and immunology. And, it's pretty good. You know, cancer research. And it's really amazing. It's a wonderful relationship. You no, know, I would imagine because your minds are probably going and it's just so exciting. Like you said, you get this data and it just must be something you want to talk about like during dinner or instead of maybe going to a movie you know I get that I get that and it's probably like let's just go back and keep going because not only is it interesting and exciting and I think what you're saying Dr. Sharma is so important I mean it's changing people's lives it's so amazing we get it (laughs) on our show Healthgate we talk to presidents we talk to Super Bowl winning athletes (laughs) we talk to award winning country stars you kind of fall into that but um um, we have never spoken to a Nobel Prize recipient. Woo! This is our first. 
time. So we have to ask you, what is it like to be a Nobel Prize recipient? And how did you hear the news? And just tell us about that. And we see your picture now, you know, all over the the airports. airports. And it's on buses, too, now. It's like on billboards on the highway on 95. (laughs) It's very cool. It's on uh, Chicago. We were at Parker's side of a clinical oncology meeting last month. And there was a four-story high. Oh, my God. (laughs) Version of the photo on the side of a parking garage. You know, I think every scientist must have occasionally, you know, some dream of the Nobel Prize because it's affirmation about the field of accomplishing something. I don't know. It was just, you know, you work along and stuff happens, you know, and I was lucky enough to have the work that I did. Again, I was mostly doing it because I just wanted to understand how T cells worked. You know, the cancer stuff came second. I was really lucky to have my science actually do something that mm-hmm. helped people. But it did turn our lives kind of upside down. I mean, the way we found out years then people started asking, you know, because there's, you know, there's rumors and stuff. And we finally just quit paying attention. But the way I found out, we were at a meeting in uh, New York City, you know, meeting with the Cancer Research Institute. She was giving her speech there. And so she gave it on Sunday afternoon. And then we had dinner and some drinks with friends and stuff. And then went to sleep. And they call early in the morning, you know, they call it, I guess it's nine o'clock Swedish time. In Stockholm, they have a press conference and announced it. So we woke up, phone hadn't rung, and Pam looked at the clock and said, well, maybe next year. So we're going to go back to sleep like we usually did. <laughs> and then the phone rang oh. almost as soon as she finished saying that. It was actually my son. Stockholm people didn't have my correct phone number or something. Oh, gosh. So <laughs> my son was watching the Nobel Foundation press conference that morning. He was the first to call press guy from Indianerson came to our room, filled up pretty quickly because the news <laughs> spread and had a bunch of champagne and stuff. And Scott Merville from Indianerson showed up and sort of said, well, why haven't they called you? And so he had the number of the Nobel people and called them and said, well, I'm right here with him and here's his cell phone number. So then finally they called me. Wow. So what do you do so now? Do you just sort of sit around and be a Nobel laureate or do you actually go back to work? <laughs> well, we've had... <laughs> We've had quite a whirlwind of speeches, Pat, and I've been traveling around giving lectures together today, trying to get that to wind down so we can get back to work. I mean, the thing is that where we're at now, due to the efforts of a large number of people, the FDA has approved what we call checkpoint blockade for the treatment of many kinds of cancer, melanoma, that could go on and on and on. But it still only works with a fraction of patients. Those that respond, respond well. There's a woman in the phase one trial that Pam was talking about. That was 19 years ago. She's still doing fine. There are plenty of people that are 10 years, thousands actually of people that are 10 years plus. So it's a really durable response once you get it, but it's a fraction of people. But then some cancers just haven't yielded yet. And so what we're doing now, it's actually called the Neotherapy Platform that we built together. It's based on Pam's early studies where we're trying to really study them in a way that we can bring the benefits to more people. I mean, that's our goal now. Why do you surmise it works for some and not for others? When what we thought the immune system is the immune system, right? And so why does it have to do with the cancer? Something we need to clarify a bit because I think some people think of cancer as one term. But what we're learning is that cancer is many, many different diseases. Um, And pancreatic cancer is very different from melanoma. 
Also, the immune system is one term, but the immune system is comprised not just of T cells, but there are, you know, myeloid cells or macrophages and dendritic cells and other cells within the immune system that we have to take into consideration. The Nobel Prize is absolutely wonderful, but it provides us now with the foundation to take the work that's really made a difference to another level. I think of it as we're at the tip of the iceberg. How do we go deeper from there to help even more patients is that we have to get a better understanding of all of the different cell types. Uh, I think Jim's work clearly showed that there are these inhibitory pathways like CTLA-4, but now we're learning that CTLA-4 is one. It's a critical one, but it's one, and there are many others. We're also learning that some tumors express some of these checkpoints on the cells within the tumors, while other tumors have a different set of checkpoints that they express. And so we have to now take the data from the field, from the basic science understanding of what these immune checkpoints do, and also from the clinical understanding of which tumor types respond and which do not, and obtaining the samples from the patients to study those immune responses, and then really come up with the best combination strategy. So I think that's where we are now. We understand that our work is just at the tip of the iceberg, and we have to do a whole lot more work to really move the field in the direction that we wanted to go in to benefit more patients. Do you see that maybe in a few years, we're not going to be calling cancer by its organ? When you talk about immunotherapy or immune treatments, is it in your mind about that organ or is it about something else? Yeah, I think the organ tells us that maybe in pancreatic cancer, for example, has a different set of cells that surround it that that are part of the pancreatic tumor as opposed to melanoma. But I also think that you're correct. It's not going to be always organ specific. There are things that are the mutation of the cancer. And those mutations can be found in a lung cancer or a melanoma or a pancreatic cancer having the same type of mutations that maybe can all be targeted with specific immunotherapy treatments because some mutations allow for more antigens or more of those proteins that T-cells can see, and that way then the immunotherapy can have more of an effect. So yes, I think we've seen already an FDA approval where pembrolizumab or an anti-PD-1, for example, which is another immune checkpoint therapy, approved for patients with specific mismatch repair mutations as opposed to a specific organ type. It's a combination of things, you know, like different tissues do have different fundamental properties, which can influence what happens during treatment, but it also, you know, it's a genetic disease, and there's a lot of different ways you could generate cancer cells. In order to get the immune system to deal with it, you have to understand the differences there, the mutations that Pam's talking about. We also have to make sure everything's working well together, not just the T cells, but the macrophages that Pam mentioned, and dendritic cells, and mm-hmm. we sort of have to be all working together to get a really productive immune response. We've built the immunotherapy platform at the Anderson Cancer Center so that we have hundreds of clinical trials that are ongoing patients with immunotherapy agents and different combinations of immunotherapy right. agents. But this immunotherapy platform then has an umbrella laboratory protocol that allows us to now collect the samples from patients and then over time see which immune responses or what's happening within that tumor that leads to good outcome for the patient and then what's happening in patients who are not getting a good outcome and then take the patients who are not getting a good outcome and then treat them with additional agents to get them to then convert their immune response to the ones that lead to a good outcome. Mm-hmm. So by studying the patients in this way through the immunotherapy platform, and I think we've studied about 3,000 patients or more now, getting all of the samples over time, you know, blood samples, tumor samples, we're learning more. And so we need to continue to do that so that we can learn more from the patients and then take that data back to the lab 
learn about it in the lab and bring it back to the clinic. So this iterative process between the clinic and the lab has to continue so that we can continue to do well for all of the patients. Mm-hmm. And we're in a much better position, you know, 10 years ago, the question was, can this work? Can you cure patients of cancer? The answer to that is, yeah, some of them, absolutely. The studies of the sort that Pam described, we're beginning to understand, you know, the basic rules begin to build a logical, rational basis for making combination therapies, which is where it's going now. It's going to be multiple drugs, and probably it'll be different for different kinds of cancers and different individuals. You said that cancer is a genetic disease. What causes cancer then? Well, it's genetic disease, not in the sense of it's inherited, you know, from one person to another, although there are some cancers that like it, but it's a genetic disease in the sense that, you know, if you smoke a lot or if you get a lot of sunburns, you know, that those things cause mutations. If you get a mutation in certain key molecules, it can cause the cell to become cancerous. Ultimately, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can specifically do. People ask all the time, you know, how do I build up my immune system? Well, like anything else, you know, it's moderation on most things, diet, get exercise, and don't smoke or do bad things to make you unhealthy. Other than that, it's kind of hard to really offer any specific advice. Right. Well, I do think we should say don't smoke and sunscreen, right? Yeah. I mean, there are things that we should yeah. definitely be advocating for and making sure that people are aware of. And then your usual checkups, right? Mammograms, colonoscopies, just to follow those kinds of health advice that your general practitioner puts in place. How does immunotherapy differ from what we know as the standard of care, like chemo and radiation, all that? I think most of the standard of care therapies, when you think about them, are trying to target the cancer cells, right? I mean, they're trying to kill cancer cells with chemotherapy or radiation therapy or even the targeted therapies that are trying to target specific mutations in a cancer cell. Immunotherapy is actually targeting the immune system. It's sort of ignoring the cancer when you think about it. The type of cancer cell doesn't seem to matter as much if you can get the immune system going so that it can do its job. The other big difference, of course, is the toxicities that are associated with each of these therapies. Toxicities of chemotherapy and radiation are well known in terms of the chemotherapy leading to nausea, vomiting, or decrease in blood counts with both of them, hair loss in certain chemotherapies. With immunotherapy, the toxicity, they're different because you're really giving the immune system this huge boost. And so the immune system can lead to inflammatory conditions, which are, you know, when you think about it, words that end in ITIS, itis, dermatitis for a rash colitis in terms of diarrhea because of the colon. So these are all different toxicities that can be associated with the immunotherapy. And we just have to be aware of them, both the patients and the physicians, so that we can monitor them and treat them early before they become a problem for the patients so that they, they have to be hospitalized. The other key thing that sets immunotherapy apart is that once you've got the T cells, you've got them for the rest of your life. So the cancer comes back, you've got cells there that can be re-alerted. They build themselves up. If you go from a few to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, you know, when they're done, CTLA-4 and other mechanisms stop from dividing anymore, and then a lot of them die. But a certain fraction of them become what are called self-renewing cells so that they hang out in your body and just slowly renew themselves in a way You've got a memory of the fact that these cells were activated before. And if something comes back, you just reactivate them again very quickly. It's the way you think of your vaccines when you get your vaccines mm-hmm. as a kid, right? When you get the polio vaccine and those kinds of things as a kid. What you've done with the vaccines is you've taught the immune system, hey, this is something that if you ever see it, make sure you get rid of it and don't let it hang out in the body. So the first time you're getting the vaccine, the vaccine is teaching the immune system and the T-cells 
this is what you look for. And then those T cells exist for the rest of your life and they have a memory to eliminate it or can create the infection. So it's the same thing with the cancer is that the immune checkpoint therapy agents are allowing for an immune response to recognize the cancer. And then when that's finished, now those T cells exist with you for life so that if any of those cancer cells show up again, it will be eliminated before they have a chance to grow into a full-blown tumor. Those T cells, it won't matter what that cancer is, right? Because that immune system or those T cells... No, no, it'll have to be the same thing. It's the same, okay. So if the tumor loses that or something, which can happen, then you've got to start over. Yeah, it's the same as the vaccines, right? Right. If polio vaccine is protecting you from polio, the polio vaccine cannot protect you from measles. From measles, got it. Okay. And the same thing with the immune checkpoint therapies when you get the treatment for a specific cancer will help you to have protection with that cancer, right. but not all cancers. If I'm newly diagnosed with cancer, do I have a whole lot more hope now, honestly? And when I go in, is it immunotherapy that I ask for? So I think people should see this as a hopeful period of time in cancer treatment. So for patients who are newly diagnosed, please, please, please have hope. We are seeing great advances with the immune checkpoint therapy agents. I do think a discussion with your physician is warranted about immune checkpoint therapy. I will point out that immune checkpoint therapies are only approved in certain settings. It's not for all patients. And so have that discussion with your doctor to see if there is an FDA-approved agent for your particular setting or your particular cancer. But also know that there are many, many clinical trials ongoing. So also have a discussion about whether or not you would be eligible for a clinical trial. So yes, it's a hopeful time. I wish I could say that we could cure all patients. We can. We are getting there slowly. We're at 20 to 30 percent and maybe even 50 percent in melanoma as we look at combination therapy of great responses. So we still have work to do. But yes, please have that conversation with your physicians if they're diagnosed with uh, cancer. Please ask them about immune checkpoint therapy. For some cancers now, it is a standard of care. It's not the remote experimental thing anymore. For melanoma, it's one of the standards of care, but various combinations and several other cancers as well. Will there ever be such a thing as like a transplant of immune system of T-cells before I get sick? I don't know that people are thinking of giving T-cells prior to you having cancer. I know they're thinking of vaccine therapies. Is there a way to give a vaccine therapy like we give the polio vaccine to people before they develop polio, for example? So can we give a cancer-specific vaccine before we develop cancer or in a higher-risk population, for example, can we give cancer vaccines? I know that there are experimental clinical trials testing this idea. Um, There are also therapies where we're giving T-cells to patients who already have cancer. Mm -hmm. So we're giving adoptively transferred T-cells or CAR T-cells to patients. So whether or not that will move into the preventative setting, I'm not so sure about that. You know, moving to T-cell therapies directly into preventative setting, but that might not be necessary for vaccine therapies work. So I think we'll shift here for a minute. Trish and I really want to know what two leading scientists do for fun. Well, science is a lot of fun. Science is fun. So, you know, we try to take vacations every now and again with the family, and I love going to the beach. Sunscreen, though. Yeah, sunscreen. (laughs) Tell us about about the checkpoints and the checkmates and all of that. And Willie Nelson. The checkpoints were the first band that Patrick Hu and Tom Kajewski from University of Chicago, and I really started getting together just the three of us initially at scientific meetings and playing because we all really like music. And then with time, it just more and more people wanted to join. So we finally just called it, you know, somebody said, what's the name? And I said, well, checkpoints, of course. (laughs) That's where that came from. But we've got to be actually pretty good. I think we've got a horn section now. We 
play around. We mostly play benefits for cancer research, particularly immunotherapy research organizations like Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer and Cancer Research Institute. We play at the big meeting of clinical oncologists every year. And Dr. Sharma, do you sing? <laughs> no, I, I'm not musically talented, uh, but I appreciate great music. Appreciate and I love those Czech boys or the Czech mates, and so I think it's fun. Very fun. How do you guys find time to take care of yourselves in your busy schedules? We do have to block time on our calendar sometimes just to be at home. We travel a lot. We're very busy even when we are in Houston. So we do try to take time off to, you know, get back to our routine of trying to work out every now and again or going for walks or just having a little downtime. But we do see that we're different if we get a little bit more sleep and a little bit more exercise. It's helpful. Tell us about Breakthrough. We mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast. We loved looking at it and listening to your whole team talk about how they're part of it. So, yeah, tell us about the documentary. Well, the documentary is a lot of fun. I hope people get to see it so that they're inspired by the science. I think young people and and all scientists should be seeing it just because of the motivation of how much work it took to get to where we are in the field right now in terms of taking a basic science idea from Jim's lab all the way to the clinic and treating patients and having successful outcomes for our patients. Also a fair amount of the fun of science and well, the hard work and the fun of the frustration. So it gives a pretty good. Bill Haney, the guy who directed it, has spent a little over a year in a variety of settings, coming to Houston and seeing us on the road, different places and catching the checkpoints and the checkmates and got some mm-hmm. footage of it one time and I played with Willie Nelson. Picks up all aspects of it, a lot about the science, interviews a lot of people that were involved um, directly or peripherally in the whole journey. It's interesting, you know, there was some stuff in there with some old films they had found that my mother died when I was quite young and so I had no memories of her. You know, they found some old movies. Uh, they're holding me as a baby. <laughs> First time I saw it, it was pretty emotional. But it, it, of course, I'm not unbiased, but Bill made it to show what it's like being a scientist and hopefully, you know, inspire young people to think about science as a career. Well, we can't wait to see it. As we said, we spent some time listening to everybody on the team. And we were saying as we got started, Dr. Allison, I don't know if you were on the phone, but listening to Dr. Sharma's video was so inspirational. I mean, we were like, we want to be scientists, okay? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. That's the point. It was so inspirational. We often like to ask our guests which books they like to read. What are your favorite books? I actually was going to say Flowers by Algernon because I've loved that book my whole life. It's a book I read in high school and really enjoyed. But recently I read Becoming by Michelle Obama and I Mm. really enjoyed reading her book Mm -hmm. because uh, I think she tells such a moving story about her life. Those would be my two picks. Mine, I guess, would be The Right Stuff. really loved reading that book then and think back on a lot about a group of guys who we're pretty rowdy if you read a <laughs> story. And then the government kept telling them, you got to do this way, this way, this way. And finally, they just said, no, nope, we're going to do it our way at certain points. And they prevailed. That's always been an inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. Do either of you have a favorite quote that you could share with us? It's one by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Actually, it's one of the most uh, important and urgent questions that we should be asking ourselves is, what are we doing for others in life? I always find that important to me because it's service and what are you doing with service for people? And that's how I try to look at my life. Dr. Allison, do you have one? That's one similar to that, but another one that I had to keep in mind for a while was, you know, don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. And yeah. you haven't. And you n- haven't. Neither of you have. So yeah. we're very grateful for that. Very much so. 
Is there anything we haven't asked you that you would like to share? I think if there's one message, it's that Pam and I have given some community-type lectures over the last several years. One of the things we want to tell people is you don't need to assume anymore that because you got a diagnosis of cancer, that it's a death sentence. There's a lot going on, not just immunotherapy, but other things as well. There's a substantial chance of actually having really long-term responses and even, even cures. There's a lot of work going on. Dr. Allison and Dr. Sharma, we so admire you, and we're so grateful for your work, and we thank you for being on our show today. Oh, thank you both very much. We're honored. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.